Good evening. My name is Andrew Godfrey, and I'm broadcasting live to you tonight from Aspen, Colorado. Welcome to the inaugural show of A Healing Journey. And this is a show that I've been thinking about doing for quite a long time. It's just an opportunity uh, for people to get together and really share some stories that might have been too painful to share with people in the past. So basically the format of this first show is I'm going to tell you about a story um, that changed my life and um, the impact that it's had really on the rest of my life. And then I'm going to follow that up with uh, reciting a speech that I gave to a conference of YPOers in Vail uh, several years ago that really sort of updates um, the events from um, the traumatic event, uh, which I'm going to tell you about first, um, up to the present day um, in my life now. And then I'd like to just open it up to questions um, for the last part of the show, and we can just talk through things. So the name of this story is called Reconciling the Plane Crash, and I wrote it on March 7th. Uh, it was published on March 7th, 2012, in the Aspen Times Weekly. I don't know if there is ever a, a good or a right time to tell a story like this. It was hard. Some have even said incredible and miraculous as a boy to survive it. But I think it might be harder for a man 38 years later to recall enough of the details of it to make sense to him or anyone else. At the very least, though, for reasons unclear to me, I know I want to try now. No one can imagine how excited I was on the evening of March 1st, 1974, as my family prepared for our annual ski trip to Aspen. Having finally made the cut to go the year before, at seven years old, I was now a returning veteran on our squad and could not wait to hit the slopes with my Schumacher cousins who lived in that incredible mountain paradise. Mm -hmm. My mother, Deneen, or Nini, to her friends, had helped me pack and had laid out the outdoor armor that I would wear into the adventure the next day. Blue jeans, white turtleneck, gray sweater, and, of course, the new brown hiking boots I had begged or rather harassed her into buying me a month before. Hidden behind my bravado about being the fourth child, at the end of the day, I was still a mama's boy. We had a bond that connected us in a special, indescribable way. I ruined with my 11-year-old brother, Mark, and when she came to kiss us goodnight, I thought I could see a bit of apprehension in her eyes. I thought it might be because the next morning we would be flying in a private plane for the first time. The company my dad worked for, Capital National Bank, had just bought one six months earlier. My aunt, Susan Schumacher, later told me that mom had expressed reservations about traveling this way and would have preferred flying commercially. A few minutes later, my father, Bill, walked into the room to say goodnight and sing us Rocky Mountain High, as he had done over the previous two weeks as a way to get us psyched up for the trip. As I listened to the song and dreamed about the wonderful trip ahead of us, I smiled and peacefully drifted off to sleep. 900 miles away in Denver, nine-year-old Danny Schaefer was presumably as excited as I was as he prepared for a weekend family ski trip to Sunlight Mountain in Glenwood Springs. Getting away from the big city for a ski trip was the highlight of Danny's year. As he dozed off to dream about the fun ahead of him, he thought about his favorite toy plane and smiled. 
The alarm clock went off at 7.30, and I sprang out of bed. Showtime. After a quick breakfast with my other two older siblings, Billy and Ellen, the six of us piled into our big orange station wagon and headed to Houston's Hobby Airport. My baby sister, Paula, was staying behind with my grandparents. As we pulled up next to the shiny new orange and white Mitsubishi turboprop, my excitement reached fever pitch, and I became determined to sit in the co-pilot seat when we took off. This train of thought was interrupted suddenly by my 14-year-old brother Billy's declaration that he would be the one sitting in that spotted takeoff. Although I was completely intimidated by my huge, supremely athletic older brother, I somehow managed to negotiate a deal with him where I would sit in that coveted position as we landed in Aspen. After, after my mother lined us up for a quick picture to capture the monumental moment in front of the private plane, we boarded it and settled into our seats. Mark and I ended up in the rear while Mom, Dad, and Ellen took their places in the middle. The pilot, Bernard Gallagher, and, of course, Billy were in the front. The three-hour flight was unfolding as remarkable, unremarkably as possible for a family traveling for the first time in a private plane to a magical winter resort they adored when Bernard received a weather report that didn't look great. He decided to bypass the scheduled fuel stop in Albuquerque in order to beat a storm bearing down on the central Rockies. This would prove to be both a blessing and a curse as the rest of the day, events of that day unfolded. For reasons unexplained to this day, a flight plan was not filed. The ride started to get a little bumpy as we began to descend into what we thought was Aspen. Unbeknownst to us at the time, although Bernard was an experienced pilot with more than 10,000 hours of flying, only a small portion of those hours had been in the mountains. Incredibly, he was off course by 40 miles from our assumed route into Aspen. Excited that we were almost there, I got up from my seat in the back and walked to the co-pilot seat to switch places with Billy. I asked him to move, and with tension that you could cut with a knife, he told me no and to get back to my seat. I did as I was told, and as I walked dejectedly back, he made a joke about how our flight was similar to the book Alive, which was just out. My father did not find this amusing and told him to keep quiet. I returned to my seat in the left rear of the plane and forgot to secure my seatbelt. As I stared out the window, a ski area came into view. Ah, Aspen, almost there. Soon this terrible plane ride would be over. Only it wasn't Aspen. It was Sunlight Mountain, and we were running on fumes because of our missed refuel stop. This ride was about to turn into a nightmare. It was 3 p.m. Danny and his older brother David were riding the chairlift up Sunlight Mountain for one more run before the mountain closed that day. Out of the corner of his eye, Danny spotted a small plane flying low and fast up the valley to its right. He was mesmerized as he followed its path. He hadn't seen a plane for a couple of days, which was an, an eternity for a plane lover like he was. Danny was fascinated as he watched it move through the blustery sky. The chairlift reached mid-station. Danny exited quickly to the right so he could continue watching the plane. David skied up next to him, asked what run he wanted to go down, when Danny's eyes appeared to pop out of his head. The plane had disappeared into a muddled puff of snow on Williams Peak, less than a half mile across the valley from where he stood. He had seen it clearly. There was no doubt in his mind what had just happened. 
He quickly turned to David and exclaimed, Oh, my God, did you see that? What, David said. That plane just crashed across the valley. Yeah, right, David muttered. You and the planes again. But Danny was insistent, so they decided to ski down to the bottom, find their father and older, older brother Doug, and figure out what needed to do next. My attention was diverted from the sight of the ground rising on the left side of the aircraft by my mother screaming, Oh, my God, we're going to crash. My first thought was that this couldn't possibly be happening. Next was the horrible sound of the plane tearing through the trees. I remember the sound and the strange sensation of sliding roughly across the snow, then blackness. When I regained consciousness, I didn't know if it was dusk or dawn. I let my eyes adjust for a minute to the diminished light. I was lying on the left side of the fuselage. The plane was split in half about four feet from me. I looked out the, at the surreal sight of pine trees and cold mountain sky. I tried to assess the situation. Wreckage was strewn around me. I was alive and in one piece, even able to move my legs and arms. I looked across to the other side of the plane and saw Mark with a dreadful look of pain on his face. He was bloody and pinned beneath a set of seats. In recognizing each other, we both cried. It was a combination of fear, pain, and yes, relief. I got up and positioned myself next to him to see if I could free his anchored legs, but they were solidly pinned in place. No matter how I tried, it was useless. I huddled next to him, and then my eyes focused on the most horrifying thing any child could imagine. My mother's left body was lying over Mark's feet. I looked away quickly, pretending that I had not seen her there, as if that would make the scene untrue. What in the world was I supposed to do now? Where was Dad? Surely he could help me, like he always did. The center of my entire world was lying there, lifeless. Worst of all, there was nothing I could do about it. This woman who had shown me more love than anyone in the world could not possibly be gone. It just couldn't be true. I found a couple of parkas, covered the three of us up. Mark and I huddled and cried and hoped against reason that these horrible circumstances were only a bad dream. At the base of Sunlight Mountain, Danny and David located their father, Dr. John Schaefer, and their older brother, Doug. Danny hurriedly relayed the story to them and had to catch his breath several times before finishing. At last, he blurted out, What are we going to do? Dr. Schaefer turned to David and calmly asked, Did you see anything? He replied, Honestly, Nope. And that was the end of that. Danny could not believe what was happening, or rather, not happening. Dr. Schaefer replied that he had seen the plane, too, and it looked fine to him. Are you sure it just didn't disappear over the horizon, he asked. David and Danny decided to take another run. As they rode up the lift, Danny started to cry. He couldn't believe what had just happened. It was pitch black when I was awakened by what sounded like a low-pitched growl. My adrenaline flowed. I became completely alert at the terrifying thought of some kind of animal prowling outside the wreckage. Was it a bear? Was it a wolf? I had no idea. All I knew was that I was scared. The growling morphed into a groan, which continued for several minutes, causing great confusion in my eight-year-old mind. Perhaps this isn't an animal, but what could it be? Could it be a person? If, if so, who? 
If only my dad were here to sing me to sleep. His voice always calmed my fears. As I contemplated various scenarios sitting there in the dark, I began to realize that it must be my mother making the mournful sound. My heart sank to the lowest depths of the entire ordeal. Was she alive, and could I save her? I was utterly helpless in the inexperience of my young age and paralyzed by fear of the hopelessness of the situation. I covered my ears and cried. I just wanted that horrible sound to stop. If only Dr. Schaefer had listened to Danny and alerted officials, perhaps my mother could have been saved. I will never know the answer to that question. Since that day, I've made a concerted effort not to allow my mind to drift in that direction, not to dwell on how differently my life would have been. Sunday morning came with a tremendous snowstorm barreling into the area. The Schaefer family prepared for another day on the slopes. Danny had barely slept as his mind poured over what he had seen and what the reaction had been by his family. How could they not believe him? Were there any people still alive on that plane? As they readied themselves, the sound of the Civil Air Patrol planes could be heard overhead, and the family realized that something horrible had happened. Danny's eyes lit up as he looked toward his father. I told you I saw something, Dad. Dr. Schaefer immediately began to process the consequences of his actions and contacted the authorities. The Glenwood Springs police determined that Danny was a credible enough witness to warrant an interview. Maddening to think about now, they were so busy with the search operations that they couldn't get anyone over to interview him until that afternoon. To say that I was in survival mode when I woke up Sunday morning, March 3rd, would be a gross understatement. The image of my mother's body lying at my feet is forever seared into my memory. She was lifeless now after passing in and out of various states of consciousness during the night. To have the rock of my world lying there, never again to take care of me, was the most helpless feeling that words can never describe. To compound the heart-wrenching misery, I had to wonder, where was Dad, Ellen, and Billy? I got up and started to look for them in the 10 by 10 cubicle of debris, which had become my world. Ellen and Dad had been sitting next to Mom during the fight. So where were they? And Billy, what had happened to him after we fought for that co-pilot seat? Was that, ironically, his last selfless act? I will not know in this life. However, I am convinced that I would not be here today had he moved for me. I felt like a cat that had used one of its lives. My mind raced in confusion as I tried to decide what to do next. Should I go for help or hunker down and take care of Mark? He was down in spirit and frighteningly quiet now. The heavy snowfall made it impossible to flag down what I supposed to be search planes. There was little chance of them spotting us under the fresh blanket of snow. Summoning the courage to look at my mother's body again, I knew for certain that she was gone. There was nobody left to help me make the decision as to what to do next. I covered her head with a nearby coat and switched into survival mode to save Mark and myself. We needed food and something to drink immediately. I rummaged through all the debris to see what I could find. The tail section of the plane, which served as our new home, was in fairly good shape, mainly because there had been no explosion upon impact due to the lack of fuel in the tank. I considered the possibility of walking for help, but was convinced that was a bad idea when I took one step out of the plane and sank up to my waist in snow. This scared the crap out of me. I flailed to get back to the relatively safe confines of the fuselage. 
My entire body was freezing, but I especially noticed it in my hands and feet. Based on what I know now about the Colorado mountains in March, I would guess that the temperature had dropped into the 20s the night before, and the clothing I scrounged together had provided minimal relief. My feet physically hurt. I began to lose sensation in my hands as I spent the rest of the day searching for food and clothing to keep marking me as nourished and warm as possible. My right hand was becoming a real issue due to the rope bracelet I was wearing. It was cutting off my circulation, but my hand was too swollen to remove it. I felt uncoordinated trying to pick things up and had to resort to using my left hand more, which was equally awkward. It was later determined in the hospital that my left arm was broken. Periodically, I could hear the sound of what I had now convinced myself to be search planes. However, it may have been the constant growl in my stomach. Regardless, the snowstorm was too great for anyone to spot us. This was another of the more trying moments of the whole ordeal. I was starving and freezing. As the early symptoms of hypothermia set in, I began to fantasize about my life back in Houston. Mark was weak and getting worse. There was little I could do to try to lift his spirits. We hadn't had a real meal since lunch the day before, and my instinct to find food kicked in. I found bags of peanuts and chips and devoured them with Mark, who was equally hungry and probably twice as scared given his complete vulnerability by being immobilized. I found a few small bottles of liquor and downed them, not realizing the detrimental effect that they would have both mentally and physically. All I knew was that it was liquid and I was parched. I ate handfuls of snow to soothe the burn caused by the liquor, not realizing this was physically taxing my body as well. About 15 minutes later, as the booze began to affect my central nervous system, things got really dicey. I started seeing things. No longer daydreams of Houston. I would have sworn that I actually saw the brick wall of my best friend Brian Breen's house just to the left side of the fuselage. It was only 10 feet away. It was like I was playing in his driveway. Suddenly, I could see him and his brothers right in front of me. I stepped forward to join them and met the frozen reality of the harsh, deep powder snow outside. There was no playground. This must be the resting place of Ellen, Billy, and Dad. The police finally arrived to meet with the Schaefers around 4 p.m. They interviewed Danny for about an hour. It was determined that he was probably the best shot at locating the downplane. They arranged to pick him up the next morning, Monday, March 4th, at 7 a.m., so he could try to lead a search helicopter to our location. Danny was excited to be going in the helicopter for the first time. More importantly, Danny was glad he would finally get the chance to help. His father was agonizing about the decisions he had made up to that point. Danny was awakened by the alarm at 6.30 the next morning and was soon on his way to the rendezvous with the police and mountain rescue teams. The first thought was to get him in the air in the rescue helicopter so he could visually point out where he had seen the plane go down. However, as the excitement waned, his helicopter lifted off and his certainty about the location decreased. After an initial pass over Summit Mountain in a spot where he thought he was standing, he got confused. How could he not recognize a spot that had been embedded in his thoughts for the past two days? Everything looked so different from above. After a couple of passes, the suggestion was made that perhaps he would be better oriented if he stood again on the ground in the exact spot from which he had seen the crash. The helicopter landed, and he was quickly shuttled to a nearby snowcat driven by Garfield County Sheriff Ralph Baker, another cool first for Danny, 
as not many boys get to ride in snowcats. The sun was shining on this beautiful bluebird day. As the cat began its slow ascent up Sunlight Mountain, Dana began to get nervous about locating the crash site again. At mid-station, while the rescue helicopter hovered overhead, Danny walked to the spot on the ski hill he would forever remember. With the sheriff standing next to him holding a walkie-talkie, Danny confidently pointed across the valley towards Williams Peak. The direction was radioed to the rescue team hovering above. The helicopter zoomed across the valley, but Danny held his breath and hoped for the best. I woke Monday morning freezing and starved. How had I made it through another night? It seemed impossible. I began attending to Mark, who was dangerously weak now and pale as a ghost. I scrounged for the last few bits of food that I had found the day before. I ate handfuls of snow to quench the bitter thirst in my mouth. My right hand was swollen to the size of softball because of the circulation I'd be cut off by the rope I said I had worn for what seemed like my entire life. I could not feel my toes. Although I had no idea what frostbite was, I was acutely aware that something was terribly wrong. The thought of never getting out of this frozen prison crept back into my psyche and tested my will to survive. I was on the verge of crying again when I heard the faint flutter of what sounded like a lawnmower. I looked skyward to witness the most beautiful sight I had ever seen, a helicopter. It slowly approached and then hovered directly above us. I screamed and waved as I exclaimed to Mark, We are saved! Saved! I see a helicopter! I wanted to celebrate with Mark and reassure him that everything would be all right now. <clears throat> I begged him to hold on a little longer. Within a half an hour, a mountain rescue team led by Donnie Stroh and Buck Brown trudged up the hillside on foot to our location. This advanced team began the rescue process. I was given water and food, something called a space bar, which I had never eaten. I devoured them without thinking that what I was eating was a completely foreign substance. Next thing I knew, I was on a sled moving toward a waiting helicopter. I shouted my only worry over the noise and confusion. What about Mark? The rescuers assured me that Mark would get out. They promised he would be right behind me. That was my turn to ride in a helicopter. An inexplicable sense of calm mixed with excitement came over me. We lifted off. You're a hero, Danny, was the message relayed back to the ground. We've got two survivors. Danny was overcome with humility and relief about what he had done. He was not crazy after all. Planned to come to rest just where he remembered it. He would not realize the full impact of what he had done until many years later. Looking back over the 38 years since these events unfolded, I realize now more than ever how lucky I am. Thanks to my waiting extended family in Aspen, the Shoemakers, my life began again as they took Mark, me, and our baby sister Paula into their home and made us part of their family. A living guardian angel, a boy about my own age that I had never met, saved my life. My mother's mother, Paula, or mommy too, would say when things look bleak, the Lord has given us so much more than he has taken from us. Even considering how much was taken from me in this tragedy, I still believe those words. Danny saved me so I could go on and marry the girl of my dreams and to have four wonderful children. I resettled back in Aspen in the fall of 1998 after spending 18 years on the East Coast for schooling and work. It was like coming full circle, and I feel that I am now where I was meant to be. I'm gradually putting the pieces of this puzzle called my life together. I felt 
for a long time that the corner piece would be found in tracking down Danny. It was not an easy task due to the time that had passed since the accident. But thanks to persistence and friends at the Aspen Police Department, I was able to locate Danny in March of 2011. I had to personally thank him for saving my life. I met Danny in October for the first time in Phoenix. It was a watershed meeting filled with sadness and joy as we recounted those childhood events that shaped our lives so deeply. There was little doubt in my mind that from this encounter we will remain lifelong friends. If I could go back and rewrite, rewrite that defining chapter of my life, I'm sure my tangled emotions would tempt me to do so. Instead, I hope that I could rely on my experience of the 38 years since then to firmly remind me not to even pick up the pen. The accident will, of course, weigh heavily on my mind for the rest of my life. I only have to remember where my path off that mountain has led to know that Mommy Two's words are ever so true. So that's the story. And um, I had no idea uh, the effect that that story would have once it was published. It, uh, it completely went viral, and um, so many friends and family members started to reach out to me uh, to thank me for, for writing it. And it, it really was overwhelming because I really wrote it for my own closure, and I didn't realize that it would bring so much closure uh, to those people who knew me and always had questions about it. So now I'm going to read the uh, speech that I gave at that YPO conference uh, that was actually titled The Healing Journey. That's that's where I originally came up uh, with that title. And like I said at the beginning of the show, it really kind of uh, starts from where the accident ended and um, and goes forward to my present day life. So... Now, I know what most of you are thinking after hearing that story. How can this guy not be a complete basket case? And the answer is only one word long, love. I know it sounds like a cliche, but love truly does conquer all. My healing begins and continues to this day with the love I received from my aunt and uncle, Mariana Johnny Shoemaker, who became my new parents. The round-the-clock vigil they conducted at my bedside during my 40 days of recovery in the Aspen Valley Hospital is what saved my life and allowed me to recover, and I will be forever grateful to them. Another early healing event occurred during our second week in the hospital when John Denver was invited by my uncle to come sing for us. He knew we were huge fans and thought the music would be a welcome distraction to the ordeal we were going through, and boy, was it ever. Mark and I had grins from ear to ear on our faces, as he walked into the room with his guitar and began to play. Luckily, we were able to capture the magical moment on tape. After several surgeries to remove my toes that had been affected by frostbite, I was released from the hospital and began to assimilate into my new life in Aspen. I was a tough, blonde-haired kid from Houston, Texas, who wasn't afraid of much, and I quickly rose to king of the hill and dodgeball dominated during recess. This pleased me a great deal and made me feel normal, but the behind-the-scenes whispering and pointing at my feet again made me feel like an outsider looking in. Another unfortunate thing happened during this time period. My friend's parents had instructed them not to bring up the accident, 
So they didn't. I didn't bring it up either until much later in life, during college, after a few beers. And that is how we literally went 38 years without talking about this event until I wrote the story in the Aspen Times. If there is one thing I want to convey to you today is that to uh, please never let this happen in your lives. <clears throat> if you know someone who's been through a tra tragic event, don't be afraid to ask them about it. The worst thing they can say is no, and the best is that they will completely open up and heal. I was sent away to a prep school in Rhode Island called Portsmouth Abbey School in the fall of 1980 to begin my freshman year. My uncle and older brother and cousins had attended the Abbey, and I was eager to make my own way when I got there because of the independence it offered. I made good grades and good friends and continued to excel athletically playing football, hockey, and lacrosse, becoming captain of the hockey and lacrosse teams by my senior year. I played with a passion, kind of a rage, that I didn't understand at the time, but looking back during subsequent reunions with my friends, we realized that I must have been releasing the anger I had inside of me. I attended Bowdoin College after being recruited to play lacrosse and quickly joined the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity and began enjoying college life to the fullest. Bits and pieces of the accident were beginning to flow more freely from my mouth, but it wasn't until I met my future wife-to-be, Diana Ward, the following year that I really began to open up. She reminded me a great deal of my real mother, Nini, and I was totally relieved to finally have someone I could share my feelings with and reveal my deepest emotions. Diane and I were married in June of 1991 in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and decided to settle in Providence, Rhode Island because of its proximity to both our jobs. We were eager to start a family, and we were blessed with our first child, Andrew Jr., in the fall of 1993. Starting a family did more for my personal healing than I am that I can put into words because it allowed me to rebuild a family that had been taken away from me. Three more children followed in the years to come, Caroline in the fall of 1996, Henry in the summer of 1998, and finally Ethan in the winter of 2002. During this period, right after Henry's birth, I began to experience a strange yearning to move back to Colorado. It's as if something was calling me home. I convinced Diane to give it a try for a year, and the next thing you knew, we were living in Aspen. This feeling of coming full circle eventually led me to start thinking about the accident more. I felt like a bear who had been hibernating for the winter and was finally waking up. I began to experience a bizarre sense of guilt that I could have let this much time pass without exploring the facts and the feelings which surrounded this life-changing event. Meanwhile, I was beginning to struggle with my new adult persona as husband, father, breadwinner, and the role model for my kids. We decided to go see a family therapist in Bernie, Texas, outside of San Antonio, called Consultant Services, and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. These emotions boiled over in the winter of 2004 as we approached the 30th anniversary of the cash, and it was time to face our fears. In a ser serendipitous twist of fate, my uncle had recently met a man who had worked for Mountain Rescue and remembered our story. His name was Dave Force, and he said he could guide us to the crash site that spring if we wanted to go. 
My heart began to immediately race, and I realized this was something I had to do if I wanted to search for some kind of closure. Three months later, Mark, my uncle, and Dave and I hiked to the site on Williams Peak and began to truly repair the emotional damage that had been done to all of us. It was nothing like I remembered it, the scary, horrific image in my dreams. Rather, it was a natural, beautiful spot in the woods filled with a calm, peaceful energy that I know is my deceased family members. After this climactic event, there was only one more thing left for me to do, get this whole story down on paper. I had thought about doing this many times over the years, but was always frustrated with my inability to locate Danny. As I mentioned in the story, thanks to persistence and a little luck, I did finally locate Danny and was able to find the closure I was seeking by writing the story. What I didn't realize when I wrote the article was how much peace and closure it would bring to everyone who knew me. I can't tell you how many letters and emails I received thanking me for finally answering all the questions they were afraid to ask for 38 years. Which leads me back to my main point today. People need to talk in order to heal. So please lend a hand and an ear to those you love around you who have been through a tragic event because there really is a silver lining to healing and I'm living proof. Thank you so much for your time. So that is my speech uh, titled The Healing Journey. And um, that is what has brought us here today. I can give you a little bit more of an update. Um, at the end of 2012, a, a good friend of mine, uh, John Breen, uh, whose brother's mentioned in the story, um, actually reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about making this into a documentary? And um, I hadn't thought about it, but I told him, you know, I, I've always loved documentaries and it's a great way to tell stories. So um, we actually began, began filming um, in March of 2013, and uh, we filmed for five years, basically, and then put another year plus into editing, and finally debuted the movie, it's called Three Days, Two Nights, at the Aspen Film Festival last fall, uh, to a tremendous success. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, uh, it was you know, warmly received by everyone here in Aspen who who knew the story and, um, you know, wanted, wanted the questions they had answered. So, and um, and then just last month we showed the film again at uh, another film festival in uh, Durham, North Carolina called Full Frame. And, again, it was the same overwhelming reaction. People absolutely loved it. Um, they, they seemed just to relate to it on a lot of different levels. So uh, we are currently looking for a distributor and signing up to go to more festivals. So at this point, um, we're getting toward the end here. I would love to open it up to any questions uh, that anyone might have. Someone did ask me a question after the uh, festival in North Carolina. You know, why did you wait so long? You know, and, and there is no time frame. Everybody, you know, who's been through a tragic event, I think, comes to terms with it in a different, you know, manner. And so, uh, you know, it's always the right time whenever someone's ready to, to start talking about it. Um, and at the time that question was asked, I joked that I was just lazy, but um, 
you know, being totally truthful, I just wasn't ready to to start talking about it. So, How does uh, again, I would encourage people just to, uh, you know, think it over for themselves, and whenever they, they do feel compelled to start talking about it, uh, then, then find someone who's willing to listen and, and start talking. Do you find that affects you now in, like, the things that you gather or the way that you think about your future. You know, for example, you know, you've been through war and you gather food. You might always eat every morsel on your plate because you've been through war, right? What sort of lasting psychological effects would something like this have, you know, in the way that you you might be different than the next man and what you think about as being important? I think I, I stop to smell the roses maybe more uh, frequently than, than other people do that haven't been through sort of a life-changing event, and I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, we could all benefit from from pausing every once in a while and just appreciating what's around us. And one other thing that I'm still affected by is whenever a, a, a plane crash occurs and I see it on the news, it, especially if there's sort of uh, – if the plane is missing and they're and they're looking for it, for instance, when John Kennedy Jr.'s plane crashed uh, near Martha's Vineyard, and and there was you know several hours went by before they they found the plane and knew what what happened, that 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 really sort of hit home with me um, and brought back a lot of of memories. But um, you know, other than those two things, I, I think I, I lead a pretty normal life. Do you still? travel by plane uh, when you have to or you're reluctant to it or is there another mode of transportation that suits you? No, I mean it it, it would be hard to live life without traveling by plane. I do have a little ritual where I tap the side of the plane uh, twice you know, I'm on the right side with my right hand as I'm entering the plane Um, and I do joke that if I'm in another plane crash and and I survive it then, then I for sure I would never fly again. I would be like John Madden, and I would buy a, a, a tricked-out bus or something and, and just travel that way. Do you prepare differently for a flight? Like, would you take like different things on the flight that most people wouldn't just because of the experience you had? No, the other little superstitious thing I used to do more frequently, and now I'm not doing as much. Is I, I used to always unbuckle my seatbelt, um, and, and it was almost like a little game I would play with the the stewardess, um, you know, to see if she would notice um, because I didn't have my seatbelt on during the accident. And I figured, you know, it worked for me once. Um, maybe I should stick with that trend. But I, I've actually been buckling my seatbelt recently, and it, it doesn't bother me. So so, uh, when, so we, even on a trip, like, you don't think i got to be prepared even if I'm going somewhere else for whatever could come. You're You're... You, that doesn't affect you in that way, per se. Well, what do you mean? Like if you were taking a long road trip or you knew you were you know, uh, going to be up skiing in the mountains for a week or something like that, would you pack differently as a result of it? Oh, oh to, like, to have survival gear or whatever? Right. No, I'm actually like a minimalist when I travel. Interesting. So, um, yeah, and I drive around Colorado a lot in the winter. And I've never carried blankets or water or anything like that. So that's, yeah, <laughs> um, 
I guess it seems like I should, but... Um... Psychologically, was there, you know, when when you went through this, was there, uh, did you did you see psychologists or were there people around you that were that were you know psychologists to you know get, help you maybe through the period afterwards or did you just kind of in your own world you were just living and it just you know you put it all together in your own mind you didn't really think about that yeah I don't think I ever saw a psychologist I think Mark did um, but I remember just sort of moving on and, and uh, trying to to get over it as fast as possible. And and I think it was even written in an article in the in the Denver Post that when they first interviewed me when I got to the hospital that night, they said I was so calm and nonchalant. It was it was almost like I was acting like nothing had happened. And, and the the person writing the article said, "Well, he he just must not understand, you know." What what's what's fully happened, but um, yeah, there's there's sort of a desensitizing I think that that happens to people after a traumatic event like that. So that might be something else that I still kind of experience. Where um, sometimes I don't cry in normal circumstances where other people would cry, mm-hmm. but other circumstances I I cry. You know, watching a, a hockey game. Uh, you know, if I'm watching the movie Miracle, that's that I, I, I cry every t- single time I watch that movie. So it seems to be in instances where people have worked really hard for something and then they achieve it. That that seems to make me very emotional. Interesting. Makes you know, I, 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 I that's amazing, uh, but I get that. I really do. Yeah. Uh, how about your brother? How do you find? The differences being that you haven't really gotten together, you weren't really that close. Uh, the differences between you are they vast or are they, you know, easy to bridge? Um, how did you find, you know, coming together with your brother under these circumstances and reliving something? I mean, how did that relationship fare after this, putting this all together? Um, we have definitely become the closest we've ever been now as a result of this project. And he really, I think, has come out of his shell. He had a very big protective wall built around himself um, where he would not talk about this. And through the process of filming the documentary, I was able to just really kind of draw him out. That's one of the principal storylines is I, you know, I help him. Uh, talk about it, and he is fundamentally like a different person now. Um, he's much more open and seems happier, and um, just not. Uh, I think he had a bit of a negative outlook where he he really felt like this uh, tragedy defined him negatively. Whereas you you know you you can really reframe anything and put a positive light on it if if you if you're determined to. And so now he, he's more empowered by it. You can just tell uh, he, he people have commented he's a, he's a different person now. So that that makes me very happy. Um, we're, we're still different people. You know, I am more outgoing than he is, um, and he's a little bit more int- introspective. But, um, no, we have a great relationship, and I, um, I, I appreciate him now more than I, than I ever have. 
because he's such a strong person. And, and he is an inspiration to me because every morning he has to get up and strap on those two prosthetic legs and go about his life. And, um, you know, that's, that's a lot harder than, uh, than you and I have to sure. do anything in the morning. Have you thought about maybe, I'm, I'm just it's throwing this out there, but getting together with your brother in a situation that might be, you know, a little bit more strenuous than most people would have, like, let's say, uh, you know, going out in the middle of nowhere and surviving for a week just to just to feel that sort of a, you know, a situation on some level or, you know, doing something a little bit risky, like jumping out of an airplane together with your parachutes on just just to, to feel that sort of I, I don't know, you know. Yeah. There's actually a scene in the documentary where we hike up to the crash site. Um, it's actually the second time we we hiked up there, um, and, and we're with our younger sister, Paula, and it, she had never been there. So we wanted to document that in the film. And the amount of effort, you know, there was a little snow on the ground. It was in the fall, and Mark is scaling the side of this mountain on his crutches. And it's you can just hear him breathing. You can see how much energy he's exerting to get to that spot and you know how determined he is to get there so wow. it's a, it's a really uh inspiring scene i bet i bet wow so you i, I you know I'm, I'm, you're like you have children yes yeah i have four kids what and do he, you he has four as well wow four each what does yeah. you, is there do you treat them with more kitty kids gloves as a result of this or you you know give more of a lecture before they do something dangerous or in your mind you think you know whatever comes comes and they're gonna have to live get through it or you you know there more is there any more worry i mean i can't imagine going through a harrowing experience where you lose your family on and, and or and you have harmed your family it wouldn't affect the way you treat your current family under any sort of condition no, I think it's almost the opposite where I've tried to really kind of toughen them up because, you know, I, I would want them to be able to to survive something like I had to survive. It. And frankly, you know, I think I was tougher. Every When every one of them turned in, I remember distinctly kind of looking at them and saying, you know, could you have done what I did? And, um, you know, I, I think people always think the next generation is getting a little softer Right. So, um, you know, but no, I, I, I was pretty tough on him and, um, you know, um, tried to, you know, be a disciplinarian, um, cause my father was a disciplinarian. Um, and so a lot of it was just sort of instinctual. Um, but again, I only, I only got to be with my real father for eight years. So, you know. Right. A lot of my memories of him are are, are, are uh, vague, hmm. Hmm. and that's and being honest, Doug, I can tell you one of the things that I'm the most jealous of in life to this day is when I see one of my contemporaries whose father is still alive, and they have a very close bond. Hmm. To, to, to me, that is just you know priceless, and you know something I've never been able to have. So the only thing I was able to do is really try to do it the opposite way with, with my kids to have that kind of strong bond that will keep going, you know, for the rest of our lives. 
do you have a good picture of who your father was learned his history or put him in a you know in a you know done any sort of a background more fully on him to kind of explore who he was when you got later or just oh yeah 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 i mean because we remained very close with his brother um and his sister um growing up and their kids our first cousins we we spent family reunions together just like we would have you know just like we did before the accident so we made we tried to maintain as many of those traditions as we can and and i remained friends you know to this day with his best friends so they're always telling stories about him and stuff and that's you know uh really uh refreshing um sure, sure. and occasionally i do have you know dreams of him as well and those dreams are very realistic it's 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 like I, my pre you know our presences are are, are together you know uh, it's 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 always amazing when I wake up in those dreams because I feel like I was with him. Interesting, like he's ta- like he's always around and he's taking care of you in a different sort of a sense. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. How how many years separate you and uh, Don? Oh, just a few minutes. We're twins. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. yeah. We've. Uh, Never really experienced loss like you have. Uh, but the, the twin, the bond between twins is a, oh, it's a totally different bond. Right. <laughs> you must feel like you can read each other's thoughts because right. Mark ha- actually has twin girls. And, you know, I can just tell from their relationship, uh, you know, how different it is. It is different. You, you're, there's the closeness that's uh, impossible to describe. Um and you know, it's impossible. I mean, you, I can I can feel lonely even when he's around, or I can feel fulfilled when he's around. Lonely because I know what he's going to do, what he's going to say. There's nothing new. I can get angry yeah. when he talks because I've already heard it all before, and I don't need to hear it again. And yet, he maybe he just wants to express himself, and there might be sometimes anger there because, you know, I I, I know what he's going to say. He doesn't even need to say it. Um, yeah, I'm sure he feels the same way about me. So there can be greater grumblings of, of discontent, and yet greater times where you are con- even more content. You know, it's it's a hodgepodge. <laughs> but I'm sure you can't imagine life without him. It, I mean, it would be like a piece of you. Oh yeah, was missing. Be it be it. I I wouldn't even want to be here. Yeah. Yeah. We live together. We work together. Um, all of our lives, we've never been very far apart, a room apart for 20 wow. years. Yeah. School and everything. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's uh, great to have somebody like that that you can uh, grow up with. You know, yeah. There's not as great at independence. I'm sure that people that grow up uh, single children, they probably have a lot they grow with a lot of different uh, uh, personality traits that we wouldn't have because we've always had each other. But uh, you know, I'm I'm very very thankful. I really am. Yeah. Wouldn't want it any. You know, it, uh, someone asked me uh, after that speech in Vail. I I talked about that. Uh, you know, how has the accident affected my faith? And um, you know, I uh, you know, did you were you mad at God or did you blame God or whatever? Um, I never really, you know, looked at it that way. Um, 
and my faith has has changed over the years. I, I can say that. Um, it's kind of gone in more of an, an eastern direction, which, um, you know, I never would have thought of growing up. Cause, sure. Um, sure. Just was raised in a in a normal sort of Catholic um, way, but um, I'm definitely a more spiritual person now, and I'm much more open to all different viewpoints as far as religion goes. Um, and, you know, if you look at Buddhism, it's really just living life more skillfully. That's how it's sort of described. And I've actually gravitated toward Taoism, and it's it's not really a religion. It's just more of a philosophy of life, and it's amazing how something written 2,500 years ago is still so applicable to you know all the things that we're going through in current day. I totally agree with you. Same problems, different uh, time. Right. I've <laughs> moved on to a spiritual bend too. Um, Taoism, uh, a Buddhism as well, where I've taken in parts and pieces of a vast religion, uh, different religions, and I've incorporated them into a, a full perspective it might be a lot different than other people's but uh, I feel very sound and happy and I get that uh, and I yeah. think it's very empowering too self-empowering by the way we have uh, maybe another minute or two okay that's just um, I just wanted to point that out because that's why I put that link to the Aspen Chapel um, on Thank my you, by the uh, way. on my page uh, I really do like their motto it's a, it's a spiritual home for everyone Um so all, all different viewpoints are welcomed, and uh, that's that's very refreshing, I think, these days. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I wish you all a good night, and have a happy and wonderful week. And thank you, Doug, for uh, for hanging in there and, and asking me some questions. My pleasure. Thank you kindly, Andrew. I really appreciate you. Good night. Good night.